0: You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Good morning. So glad that you are here today. We are going to jump into the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn to that, and uh, they're going to bring up your lights over you so you can see your Bible a little bit. I want to shout out uh, this morning to my son Joshua. It's his 16th birthday today. Happy 16th, Joshua. Um, How many of you, I'm just, uh, by the way, curiosity, how many of you got your driver's license like the day you turned 16? Okay, how many of you waited like you waited till after that? How many of you just, all right, all right. It's interesting, like, these days, uh, more and more younger people are waiting to get their driver's license. And I was just curious to see, demographically, how many of us got it right on our 16th birthday and how many waited. Because uh, we didn't used to be as connected as we are uh, today. Like, youth You know, in my day, if I wanted to go and talk to my friend, I either had to be on the landline attached to a wall because there was this thing called the cord that used to be in your phone. And you had to, like, stay there, and you'd talk to your friend. You know, maybe you were in your bedroom or, you know, the hallway of your house or wherever. Uh, Or you had to get in your car and go see them. So to get your driver's license meant freedom, and you could get over there, and you could have, you know, a lot of energy. And uh, nowadays, students have energy in their fingertips, and they're able to connect with their friend immediately at any time Uh, not connected to a wall or anywhere else. And it's just an interesting dynamic in our culture. Uh, How many of you know what the California state motto is? Anybody here know any teachers? What is it? It's Eureka. That's right. Absolutely. And Eureka was, you know, the term that they used. It was what they would say when they would find gold in uh, the state of California, obviously during the gold rush and the prospecting that happened at the time. And when people would say the Eureka state, You could come here and you could find riches, you could find uh, beaches, you could find all sorts of living, and people all over the country just, you know, went west, and they went west for the lure of riches and for gold. They wanted something more in their life. They wanted some energy, and so it was the Eureka state. Eureka comes from the word that Archimedes said when he finally figured out how to measure the volume of gold when it's purified. See, what would happen back in those days, you might get gold and you would have it and you would take your gold in its rougher form and you would take it to the goldsmith to purify it. And the the goldsmith, a lot of times, would pad his own pockets. He would melt down a lot of that gold. He would, In the refining process, he'd say, I'm going to take some of your gold out for myself and I'm going to put a lesser value element in that gold and mix it in because you won't be able to tell the difference. In terms of the purity of the gold. So they would mix in silver or something else and give it back. But Archimedes finally figured out the displacement that you could not only measure the size and the weight, but you could measure the volume of the gold. So you could find out, this was important for people, you could find out if you were being cheated or not of your gold. And so he said, Eureka, when he discovered finally that he could figure it out how not to get cheated when his gold was refined. And people, I think, moved to California looking for Eureka. They're looking for something greater. They're, looking, they're tired of being cheated in life. They feel like their life maybe doesn't have a lot of energy. The funny thing, though, is that native Californians who live here were always looking for something extra, something more, something to give a little energy boost, something to give us a little something in life that will really, truly help us. We're always looking for energy. We're always looking for real power. And our culture is addicted to it. How many of you uh, would say, in all honesty, you are a regular consumer of energy drinks? Anyone around here in this room? Okay, a couple of you, yeah, you know. Um, I I drink uh, an energy drink in the morning. Am I the only coffee drinker in here? I mean, who else? Coffee? Come on, that's that literally is an energy drink. It's just not packaged quite like it's not not packaged quite like this. All right, here we go. It's not packaged quite like this, but uh, it's an energy drink, right? I mean, it basically is. We're looking for energy. We're looking for, and all the energy drinks that are particular energy drinks, they all come with a warning label. Do you ever notice? You read like the fine print on the back. They typically say something like this, not recommended for children, pregnant, or nursing women, people sensitive to caffeine. So they're basically just, you know, legally they're saying, hey, don't drink this. If these are the conditions, we'll put down what the basic, you know, generic blocks are to save ourselves from litigation. But the point is they know that what's in here does bring energy but they also know that that energy has a warning. And so on every drink like that, they got to put a warning label. Now, how many of you today would say, you know, you could use a little extra energy? If you're gonna be honest, I mean, middle of summer, you could do, all right, here we go. So you girls here, you got to catch though, ready? Get your hands free, got to catch and you can share, right on. All right, I didn't want to, uh, you know, knock anybody out with that thing. It might be a little too much energy at one take. Uh, But basically, you know, we look like we need a little bit of extra energy. We want something more to give us a little kick in life. But they typically come with a warning label. And our culture loves it, whether it's energy drinks or sugar or caffeine or, you know, natural stimulants. Whatever it is, our culture is in love and infatuated with energy. Quick, insta-power. But did you ever notice that even those sources of energy typically have a warning label? It may not be good for our health. It may be that it's uh, trouble in some way. Power itself usually comes from a, uh, with a warning. When you see a power grid or something that's electrically dangerous, they'll put a little symbol on that box or on that panel so that you don't die. Why? Because, you know, voltage can kill and uh, stimulants can cause stroke and riches can cause you and I to say that we don't need God because we're just relying on ourselves. Title can be abused and deception can lead to destruction. Power usually comes with a warning label, no matter its form. I want you to think of that for a minute when you and I think about energy. Because it's one thing to desire energy when we're tired. To say, hey, I want a little perk up. That's one thing. But it's a whole other matter to need and desire energy. Perhaps the time we need it more than any other time is when we are oppressed or we're being persecuted or being troubled by somebody else. Do you ever feel that? You're just like, oh, I just need some energy right now because this this tension that exists between me and somebody else is just huge and I I hate it and it's ongoing and it's draining in my life. You might think of a relationship, perhaps for you, you might be in a power struggle right now over legal rights or alimony or child support. And just that ongoing battle just drains you. You might be facing a lawsuit of some nature right now and be incurring high legal fees. You might have a warrant out for your arrest and just have that weight over you. There's this tension as you go about life that, that you need to take care of some things legally that maybe you haven't. But it's not just legally. Perhaps for you, you might be hated because of your religious beliefs. You might be persecuted or ignored or slighted because of your parenting style is different than another person's parenting style. And you all used to be friends before you had kids. But then you had kids and your parenting styles are so different, you just, you know, you just kind of get separated a little bit. Maybe you're persecuted because you have business ethics. And you actually use them and live by them. You might be persecuted or insulted or bullied by a healthcare professional who may be charged with caring for your aging parents. And their job is to take care of your parents. But as you're trying to get good care for your parents, they, you run up into a system that says, I will just do what is the bare minimum, and I'm only gonna adhere to that and not do anything extra. And it's to the detriment of your aging parents. And you might be bumping up against a healthcare professional who says, Listen, I'm not gonna go the extra mile, I'm not gonna do anything else and they start getting tired of you. You might be persecuted by a jealous girl or an ex-boyfriend or a person who manipulates you because they feel powerless. You might be oppressed or persecuted by a difficult manager or a boss or a university professor or an internet bully. You might be facing persecution. And let me tell you, opposition can be as simple as a defiant three-year-old girl who insists on wearing her cowgirl boots with her princess dress. And you find yourself in this power struggle, and you're like, really? Do we just really need to have this power struggle? And you just in those moments feel like whether I'm being persecuted or there's things over my head, I'm in a power struggle with a person who's this small. I just need some energy, some real power in my life. Well, for the church in Thessalonica, persecution was a little bit different. For them, it led to a loss of business. Persecution for them led to physical assault. Persecution for them led to martyrdom in the early church. And shortly after Paul and his dream team gets to Thessalonica, begins to convert people and have a startup church, he, he gets us going. Paul actually has to leave and flee the city because of persecution. That there were Jewish people in the city who said he's bringing a false religion and they stirred other people up and they chased him out of the city wanting to beat him up. And so he actually had to flee. And so his team writes back now to this growing startup church who's being persecuted. And they write the book of Second Thessalonians after they write the book of First Thessalonians, but both books are intended to encourage them And give them the secret of real power, real energy for their time of need. And so if you have your Bible, open with me. It says this in 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. There's his dream team. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just time out right there. I want to point out that he says grace and peace. And it sounds like just simply a nice Salutation, But you need to realize that every believer has those two things. Grace, which is your salvation, right? It is by grace that you've been saved. We have that. Secondly, if you're an authentic believer in Jesus Christ, peace. Because peace has been made between you and God. There is no longer an enmity between you and God, but peace has been made. So every believer that he's writing to, these believers, he's saying, listen, grace and peace to you. And he says who it's through. From... God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which... You are suffering i want to point out to you a little bit here today that these people are being persecuted they're suffering life is not comfortable they love jesus but in their daily routine it's hard they face opposition they're in need of power but i want you to understand that if you read this simply as a believer today you might misunderstand that suffering is evidence of god's judgment on you have you ever gone through a hard time and you thought, well, maybe God's judging me. Maybe God's judging me because life is difficult right now. More often than not, our difficult circumstances at times are as a result of our own decisions. Like we might bring stress onto our life. We might bring consequence onto our life, or more, life itself is gonna have trouble. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's just part of life, trouble's part of life. So, if you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this. Don't misunderstand suffering as evidence of God's judgment. It's part of His will for believers. You say, What? <laughs> yep, that's right. Suffering is part of the deal. When you say, How do I know I'm in the will of God? Uh, if you're not suffering, chances are, if you haven't suffered for a long, long time, you're probably not in the will of God. Because suffering's part of the deal. Sometimes it's suffering for doing good. Other times it's for our growing. Other times it's because we're going to face opposition and persecution from the outside world. And as we do that, we respond not as the rest of the world, but we respond as believers in Jesus Christ. We have a different response, not our flesh, but a reaction of faith. 1 Peter 4.9, Peter says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator... And continue to do good. So, what happens? We see right there that suffering is part of the will of God. And if we find ourselves in suffering, it's not a, as a result of God's judgment, but rather that we commit ourselves to His ownership, and we continue to do right, to do good. So, let me say it. Don't misunderstand. Suffering is evidence of God's judgment. Your second fill in the blank is the evidence that you are counted worthy is that God gives you strength to endure and persevere and grow. So how do we know? How do I know that I'm counted worthy of God's calling? He gives strength to persevere and endure and grow. So we ask the question, how do we have joy in trials? When we're facing opposition or persecution, how do you have energy? How do you have power? How do you have joy when you're experiencing trials? We ask God, God, please, give me strength. Give me strength and energy and power to continue doing right as we endure this tough season, this tough person, this tough opposition, this tough trial. The bottom of your notes kind of gives a big idea for today, and I want you to catch it. It says this. God gives us real power, so our deeds and desires are prompted by faith, not reactions of the flesh. What happens when you and I face opposition? Our flesh wants to react, right? That's why you and I, we get in a power struggle with a toddler, and it seems like they're winning. And you're like, I don't know, should the toddler win this battle or should I? By the way, parents, let me just tell you, when you get in that and there's that tension between you and a toddler, in a righteous and godly and a right way, there are certain battles that you must fight and you must win because it will bless the future you in your life. That it's okay to expect children to sit at a table during a meal because when you have to take them out with other friends, you will be blessed if you've trained that. You'll be able to be like, we can take our kids out, and it's enjoyable, instead of being like, I can't go out and eat with my kids because it's a nightmare, right? So what do we do? We train, we work, there's certain things, but there's other things that we have to remove ourselves from the power struggle. You have to say, my reactions are starting to be of the flesh, and that's where in our culture we see abuse happen. That's in our culture where we see wrong actions being taken against a child whose nature is to react by the flesh. But what happens to us, our nature wants to react back at them by the flesh. So we say, God, I need your strength. I need to endure. I need to persevere. I need to grow. I need strength to make any of those things happen. Otherwise, I'm just done. Paul understands this, and there are people in that church who felt that way, and so he says this in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. How many of you just made this your life verse? Like, thank you, God, right? God will give trouble to those who trouble you. How many of you are like, yeah, right? Come on, be honest. You're like, yes, God, you trouble them. That just became your new prayer request, God. Trouble them who trouble me. Amen. You know, give relief to me and trouble them. That You do it, God. You go get them. Well, Paul shatters that early dream in the rest of the verse when he says, this will happen when... The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. So, run on sentence. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. He's saying, listen, a day is coming when judgment will happen and God will trouble those who trouble you, but that day may not be right now. Well, why would God do that? So often we ask, why why does God punish sin? Why does he have to punish sin? Why can't he just let it go and have a good talk, good talking to the people who are sinning, ourselves included? Why can't we just sit down and have a rational, logical conversation? Well, God is just. It's just for God to punish sin. Why? Because it's what a good judge does. This last week, we had a former youth group student who was in upstate New York. Um, his parents couldn't find him. They put out a thing on the Internet. We're all looking for him just through social media and other things. They found his body. And a uh, great bass player, um, probably 31 years old, um, just a a neat young man. And you know, when you hear that and it happens and they don't know at this point in time all what happened, all the details haven't come out, but you begin to think, listen, if if that was your brother, if that was your son, and if there was crime involved and uh, someone was caught who committed such a crime and they were taken into the uh, courtroom Do you think that the judge is having a good, logical, talking to conversation with a killer would be okay with you? Of course not. You want justice. And what a good judge does is a good judge brings justice. Not outlandish punishment, but he brings justice for wrong. That justice demands reward for good and it demands punishment for bad and that's what god does he's a good judge he's completely consistent and so he must out of his justice he must judge sin otherwise he compromises his very character his very nature and god's plan insists on a final judgment for every individual person when he created you he knew that his big picture plan would involve a final judgment for each person. John three thirty six says this: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on them. God's big picture plan involves a reckoning, a final judgment. The trouble is, we want God to use His judgment right now to trouble those who trouble us. In fact. Uh, You weren't going to skip down on your outline. One more point. I flipped these yesterday when I was going through this. And so you're going to realize it would be step four on yours, but three on my outline. We want to use God's power to trouble those who trouble us. We want God to bring justice to everybody else. And we want God to bring grace to us. See how that works? So we're like, yeah, get up, God. Trouble those who trouble us. But there's a warning label to that power. Because every power comes with a warning label. And the warning label is found in Romans 12, 19. Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Let me tell you. When we think that God is not troubling those who trouble us, we think that we ought to trouble those who trouble us. And there are some of us in this room right now who have plans for revenge against somebody else. It might be the silent treatment. It might be a way to pay them back or get them back. It might be words that you're storing up and planning to say. It might be that you're setting up a deal to harm them financially because you're trying to trouble those Who trouble you, but that power comes with a warning label. Verse, well, point four God's judgment is inescapable and works on his time frame, not ours. See, God is just. He will judge, but he's gonna do it on his time frame, not on ours. And when we're persecuted, We're like, God, rescue us and bring trouble on them and do it now so that I know you're active and involved in my life. That's what we want, right? Prove to me that you're for me and against them. That's what we want. But we've got to realize that that God does not work on our time frame. He says, big picture, listen, I will bring all things unto justice but I will do it in my time frame, not yours. And by the way, my justice is inescapable. And so there's two things that happen to believers when you're in a time of persecution or trial. And Paul alludes to these, but I want to make sure that we catch them. In times of persecution and trial, God increases your faith in him. He's going to increase your faith. See, I had a boss a number of years ago. I switched construction companies from where I'd been working for like four years, and I uh, had to work a summer, and I thought, well, if I got to work, I might as well build my home church. They were going through a building project, so I switched companies so I could work on the project that was my home church in Southern California, and so I was at the time a framer and a carpenter and did a bunch of stuff. I mean, I could do lots and lots of stuff that I'd learned over summers of working construction, so I get on the job, and I have a a boss named Mark. And Mark is the site manager. He's not the owner of the company. He's the site manager. And Mark quickly becomes a very cruel man in my life. Like he literally would mock me. When I first got on the job site, he made me do the very basic things. Even though i had been building houses with my hands, he wouldn't let me use power tools at first. He gave me the very basic jobs, and so faithfully, I'll do those basic jobs. And he would look for every opportunity to blame me when others made mistakes. One time, this uh, guy was carrying a whole you know, uh, wheelbarrow full of broken-up cement and stucco, and they had just finished stuccoing the building. And he got out of control, and he ran that thing into the side of the building, and it made this huge scrape along the side of the building. And it dumped over then the other way. He hit the building, and he bounced off, and he poured it all over the sidewalk. And so I'm coming over and helping him clean it up. Well, Mark comes around the corner and he just chews me out. Hated that I was a Christian. Mocked it. And during that time, God had wanted my faith, my belief in him, to grow. About five years later, I walked into my home church to my dad's Sunday school class was interacting with different people. And this guy came up and he said, do you remember me? And I'm like, yeah. But he was so out of context, I totally recognized him. But I, I, for a minute, I couldn't put out who he was. And all of a sudden, I realized, that's Mark in Sunday school. This is my former, you know, hated boss in Sunday school. He says, you know what? Um, he basically just go. he just says, you know, I was mean to you. But God got a hold of my life. And, uh, and I'm here in church now. And he's holding his hand out. And there's this moment where it's like, am I going to shake his hand, you know? And I did shake his hand. But I marveled. Here's why. Because God took the furthest out person. If you ask me, Dave, who in the world do you know that you think God probably will never reach? Mark? I mean, be that fast, you know? That guy made my life miserable for a summer while I had the joy of serving, building my home church. But God grew my faith, that God's power is greater than my imagination. God's power is greater than my belief. He can do all things. He wants to increase our faith during times of trial. But the second thing that he wants to do in times of persecution or trial, God wants to increase our love for other believers. See why, what happens? If we all got persecuted, the whole comparison thing would get knocked down and we would just come together Tighter even as a church. Why? Because now we're like, hey, let's leave any petty differences behind because we are corporately, together, we are facing persecution. And that's what happens. Your love for other believers grows. And when you're a believer who understands what it's like to be persecuted in your faith and your love grows, you care for people across the world. You care for people who face persecution. You care when someone gets martyred for their faith. But what happens to us all too often? We're distracted. We don't really love other believers around the world. We're interested in the news about them, but what would we really do to help a kid who is sex trafficked in India? What would we really do? That that kid believes Jesus. What would we really do help them. Well, what happens? When we undergo persecution, our love increases. And it's interesting. Paul had prayed two things. He prayed, listen, Thessalon, you know, people in Thessalonica, I want you in your church. He prayed in, in 1 Thessalonians, the first book. He says, I'm praying that your faith and your love will increase. And then at the beginning of this uh, chapter, verse 3, he says, thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. Why? Because your faith is growing more and more, and the love you all have for each other is increasing. See, Paul's all excited because he's saying, I have prayed that that would happen, and I'm seeing that as you continue to endure a long season of persecution, your faith is increasing, your love is increasing. For some of you, people who know you, like really know you well, would recognize that your faith is not increasing, and your love for other Christians is not increasing in fact you criticize them you judge them and you certainly wouldn't help them out financially if you were to be honest with yourself you are so selfish at times you think only of yourself and only of your life and only of your needs and only of who troubles you and you're comfortable and you're spiritually soft and sometimes you're more in danger of unintentionally ending up in hell than being persecuted by the world because you simply blend in You don't look anything different. See, that's what was happening to the people in Thessalonica. The people who were persecuting them, they were the Jewish church. They thought they were God's chosen people. We're in. We're saved. It's all good. We're Jewish. And they were persecuting the believers, those who believed, in the Jewish God-man Jesus who gave his life for them. They were the ones stirring up persecution. Let me ask since they've all died from the time this was written, how do you think it went for them standing before God's inescapable judgment? I've got to tell you something. Paul has compassion for those Jewish people stirring up trouble. Why? Because he used to be one too. He used to persecute the church and kill Christians but he knows that God can reach the furthest out person. So his faith has increased, his love has increased, and his love for other believers has increased. And so now, a former hater, Paul, is one who, even though he experiences persecution and intentionally runs away from persecution, loves those who are persecuted, but he also realized that love demands that we love those Who hate us. Because Jesus did that for him. You know, every now and then, you preach some sermons, and there'll be people who sometimes will come up and be like, yes! You know, or they'll be like, on the inside, as as someone's preaching, they're listening to myself, another pastor, somebody preaching, and on the inside, they're like, yeah, get them, pastor, come on! They're like, "Mm," you know, just like, you love that, and they're like, oh, let's get them, you know, say it like it is, get it. And I gotta tell you that sometimes that power has a warning label. You might be decreasing in your love for other believers. You might be decreasing in your faith and becoming more a ready and willing judge right now instead of one who's persevering and enduring and growing. Be careful on the inside when you feel like, get them. Because I think sometimes we do that, our faith and our love decreases. Well, the third thing that happens when we're in times of persecution, God promises that his judgment for believers is different than his judgment for non-believers. His judgment for believers holds eternal rest and relief. i got to tell you something. The word, if you do a word study on rest or relief, eternal rest, eternal relief, you know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of all the tension of life being released. See, even if you and I, we go on vacation, it's it's really a a better picture if I use this. The picture that Paul is using in the Word, if you study it, is it talks about the tension that's on a bowstring. And he's saying, this is life. And when you're under persecution, it feels pretty bad. But he's saying, eternal rest is all the tension of life is released. See, what happens to us? We've got tension in life. And then we're like, well, I need some more energy so I can maintain the tension. Or you go, I need a vacation so I can ease the tension. But you get on vacation, you realize a good vacation doesn't provide all the soul care I need. Life still has tension. But let me tell you, God's judgment for believers is a release of all the tension of life. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that good news to your soul? God's just. But that tension and that release doesn't happen on our time frame. It happens on his. And while we're in this world, we will have trouble. But take heart, because God, Jesus, has overcome the world. So what does God tell us to do? Point five, God wants us to ask for his strength to endure opposition as ones worthy of his calling and as ones who've had their punishment paid for. So what do we need to do? We need to ask Listen, don't just say, don't just accuse God of not giving you strength. He's saying, ask, ask for my strength to grow, to endure. Paul is praying. He's saying, listen, when we ran away from Thessalonica, we were praying for you that you would go ahead and experience peace, that you would be able to endure if no peace comes, that you'd be able to persevere even if it leads to being beat up or martyred, that you would be able to last until you experience rest. See, our world thinks that ending life results in rest. But if we understand God's judgment, ending life without God doesn't equal rest. Ending life without God equals judgment. And when our life ends in relationship with the Lord, we experience rest. So God gives us real power so our deeds and desires are prompted by faith, not reactions, of the flesh. Now there's some warning labels here. Just let me give you, there are certain agreements you and I make when we're under persecution. And sometimes you and I make false agreements with the illusions of power the world offers, including revenge. And maybe your heart today has been making agreement with that. Maybe somewhere in there today you've been making some agreements with the world's power. And saying that's the way to get your needs taken care of. Maybe some of uh, of you, you're in the middle of persecution, you feel like you've just failed. You did take revenge. You have not been loving. You have not asked God for strength, frankly, not even once. And you feel like God's not working in you. Well, begin again. Ask. He gives without finding fault. I heard from a pastor this week named Craig Rochelle, I heard him say that failure is an event, not a person. What does our world do? We try to elevate the failure, the event, to equate the whole rest of the life of that person. But God says failure is an event, it's not a person third warning is that we lose joy and we give up when instead we ought to just endure and persevere and ask God for strength and he will grow us like ones worthy of his calling because God gives us real power so our deeds and desires are prompted by faith not reactions of the flesh. Paul ends with this he says with this in mind we constantly pray for you. What's he doing? Not just asking for himself he's asking for them. Constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's happening here? God wants to work that. It's his strength that comes to you. It's him making you and me worthy of his calling. We think, God, i got to make me worthy of, his, of your calling. No, he's saying, Tom, Paul's saying, listen, my prayer is that God makes you and I worthy of his calling as his strength works in us, as his power works in us, that God has begun a good work in us, and our job is to participate with it. We think our job is to produce it. And God says, "Ah." Oh, participate with what I want to do in you. Don't reach for the world's power, including revenge. Don't react out of the flesh, but reach for strength to persevere and endure. And what happens then? He says that we will marvel. In verse 10, he said, you know, that we will marvel at what God does. He says, the day that God comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. We will marvel at God, but we also marvel when we see God at work in others. Days before my dad died of pancreatic cancer in a hospital, we were on the phone with him, and it was one of those rare opportunities where the the drugs were not making him too sleepy or groggy, and he was really fully present on the phone and having a conversation with my dad and it was just it was just hard 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 I remember passing the phone off Zachary was three at the time and he came up and he's like he's like I want to say hi to Papa I want you know a little I want to say hi to Papa I want to say hi to Papa okay so I finally just hand the phone to him and he gets on the phone and he doesn't really get what's going on right he doesn't know and so he goes he goes Papa you know what song I'm learning can I sing it for you and so Heather and I are standing there watching, like, well, what's he going to say? What's this conversation going to be like, right? And, and he begins to sing, and he says this. He goes, can he goes, I sing? He goes, when I get to heaven, going to walk with Jesus. When I get to heaven, going to see his face. When I get to heaven, going to talk with Jesus, saved by his wonderful grace. And we wept. And we marveled two days before my dad goes home to be with Jesus, that God would bring encouragement to him in his persecution, his endurance to struggle with the flesh from a little three-year-old boy who has no clue what's going on but by the grace of God in that little boy as an encouragement, an unlikely source encouraging the one who will be persecuted to strengthen his faith and to love others. We marveled And you and I will have deeds that are prompted by faith. See, our deeds are often prompted by our flesh. We just do what we're going to do. And God says, time out. That's not spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is your deeds are prompted by faith. And the desires for goodness, I'm going to carry them out. That desire you have in your heart to be good, God's like, let me work that out. So that your deeds are prompted not by yourself, but by faith, reliance on me. Real power, real strength, real glory, even in those times when you and I need to endure and persevere, and we will share in his glory as ones worthy of his calling. And as much as we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his glory. Isn't that good news? So maybe you here today, you need to be one who needs to endure. And just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, thinking about the condition of your own life, perhaps today you're realizing I Maybe God's calling me to persevere. I've been asking for rescue and release, but maybe he wants to do some growing in me in this time when my life is being oppressed. Some of you need to reach for forgiveness because your debt has been paid for. And you've been planning revenge, but God's saying reach for forgiveness because I paid your debt. That's how serious your stuff was. And maybe some of you are here today and you've never come into relationship with God. There's not peace between you and God. And there is a judgment that is coming. And you've never made it right between him and you. But God says, Jesus says, I died on a cross and took all your sin upon myself. And I paid for it in full. And in return, I'm just asking you to give your soul to me. And Jesus had real power. He rose from the dead. He is God. He proved it, but he says, it's a gift. This eternal rest, this release of tension of life, eternal rest in me, it's a gift, but you must receive it. Jesus says, I've done all the work, but you gotta take the last step. And maybe today that's you. You need to take the last step. You need to finally say yes to Jesus. And if that's you sitting right here in the room, maybe you just pray a prayer right where you're sitting. You repeat a prayer like this, quietly to God. He hears you right after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe that you died on the cross and that you rose from the dead, that you have real power, and you are the only one who offers heaven. So today, I ask you to come into my life and take over. Make me a new creation. Clean me of my sin. And give me eternal rest. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast.